Uh, the, the subject of this afternoon's panel is uh, manners, uh, morals, and modern America. And if you step back and think of it, there's a sort of real logic to the day. You start working for the modern corporation to make tons of money. You spend it all to send your kids to the universities where their manners and morals can be uh, deconstructed. Um, <laughs> um, but in a serious sense, culture, in a deep way, was always something central to the public interest, either in the background or in the foreground. And we're very privileged to have uh, Kay Heimowitz, Diana Schaub, and Bill McClay here uh, to explore marriage and family. Uh, bioethics and uh, religion in uh, America. My first job after college, I should say, was as an editor at the Public Interest, and we had this discussion this morning on uh, compensation and value added in the relationship between those things. Among uh, one of his many great strokes of genius is Irving hired young editors and paid them very little, uh, probably more than, than we deserved, but uh, it was always wonderful to get essays by Kay Heimowitz, Diana Schaub, and Bill McClay, because you didn't have to do much work. Uh, actually, you didn't have to do any work at all. And so I felt like the balance was restored a little bit in the compensation uh, scheme uh, because of their wonderful writing and, and always uh, deep insights. Uh, let me start by introducing Kay Heimowitz. Uh, she is the William E. Simon Fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor of a city journal, uh, writing extensively on education and childhood in America. She's the author of a book called Liberation's Children, Parents and Kids in a Postmodern Age, and a book that just came out, everyone should rush and uh, get it, uh, which looks wonderful, Marriage Encased in America, Separate and Unequal Families in a Postmarital Age. Her articles and essays have appeared basically everywhere, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the New Republic, uh, the Public Interest, Commentary, and uh, various other journals. Uh, she received her undergraduate degree in English and American literature from Brandeis, a master's in English literature from Tufts, and a master's of uh, philosophy uh, from Columbia University. Uh, her subject is marriage, children, and family. I uh, want to thank uh, uh, Robbie and everybody else who uh, had a hand in inviting me today, that I have to tell you that getting ready for this uh, talk was not really uh, all that much fun because as I, I read through all of the uh, articles for, that appeared in public interest on marriage, families, and children, I realized that in all the years that I had been writing about this subject, I haven't had a single original thought. So... Uh, be that as it may, I, I recently happened across a few lines from a, a play uh, that's uh, just been made into a movie now called The History Boys. Perhaps some of you have seen it. Uh, and I um, uh, was struck by this particular line. It's spoken by a female teacher. Um, she will come across as a bit of a feminist when I give you this line. It's, she, that's not the case. But in this particular scene, she does enjoy poking fun at her male colleagues as we women often like to do. And here's her line. She says, history is a commentary on the various and continuing incapabilities of men. History is also women following behind with the bucket. I want to put a little twist on her lines and, and try it this way. American social history of the second half of the 20th, his, uh, 20th century is a commentary on the various and continuing incapabilities of the new left. American social history of the second half of the 20th century is also the public interest following behind with the bucket. Um, 
you know, this, this may sound a little uh, overly partisan, but it, it's hard to read back at this, uh, these oldie but, oldies but goodies, uh, the uh, period of the 70s and 80s, uh, and, and not be reminded of the many buckets of very bad ideas and very bad research, by the way, uh, that was prevalent uh, during the, what I call the unmarriage revolution of the past 40 years. And these ideas found a baffling amount of support uh, from social scientists, from lawyers and judges, uh, from policymakers. And this was support that the public interest uh, contributors patiently and I think successfully tried to deconstruct. Uh, I think uh, I will try to argue towards the end of my talk that uh, we can use the word successfully because so many of the positions taken by public the public interest on the family uh, have slowly and painfully evolved into general consensus, uh, so much so that even sociologists uh, can now agree on some of it. Now, the subject of family breakdown um, is where I want to start. I'm going to talk, uh, I'm going to kind of divide my remarks into two parts, um, start with a family, marriage, and then go into uh, discussion but more about children. Um, the uh, Public interest is about the first to arrive at the scene of the unfolding disaster of the just beginning rise of illegitimacy and divorce rates that we're beginning to see in the mid-60s. And in the fall of 1990, uh, 1966, uh, the journal uh, published, and courageously I might add, given the attacks that Senator Moynihan was, or he wasn't senator at the time, but Patrick Moynihan was fending off at this time in response to hit the release of his, uh, the Negro family the year before. Uh, the journal published a chapter from a, a book called Tally's Corner by Elliot LeBeau entitled the chapter Fathers Without Children. Um, LeBeau's article is uh, ethnography and in that sense it's a little unusual for the public interest but I found it so compelling uh, and so uh, current in many respects that I, I just I wanted to describe it to you a little bit. Um, LeBeau describes what he calls the street corner men. These are uh, uh, mostly, I think, well, all black men who are hanging around the corner, uh, corner in, uh, in Washington, D.C. at the time. Uh, many of them had children or thought they might have children. They weren't really sure. In many cases, the women they had been involved with weren't sure who the fathers of their children were. Uh, other men spoke of their children who were back home, that is, in the South. Uh, they, uh, uh, none of them had aff affectionate memories of their own fathers uh, who had often abandoned them and their mothers or, had, <clears throat> or who had beaten them uh, if they had not abandoned them. Um, these men didn't seem to be able to express much affection for their own children. Occasionally they might hand them a dime or touch them and the children were, uh, uh, as LeBeau describes it, so uh, hungry for this uh, attention that they would go off and, and uh, uh, describe it to their friends. Um, I thought a particularly poignant insight uh, from this chapter is that the street corner men, uh, as LeBeau sees it, seem more comfortable with their stepchildren than with their own children and LeBeau speculates that this is because they, their own children uh, heightens their, uh, being with their own children heightens their sense of failure. Um, you would think that this very sad portrait of men without wives and children and uh, consequently without purpose would have been a warning to Americans to proceed with caution 
in matters familial, but, but of course that was not to be. And uh, as Senator Moynihan put, pointed out in a 1992 article, which I think is half ironically entitled, How the Great uh, Society Destroyed the American Family, no punches uh, pulled there, uh, the architects and managers of the Great Society were rather indifferent to the question of family, and st uh, family structure. As divorce and Ill illegitimacy soared throughout the decades, social scientists tried to explain how it was all an understandable and inevitable response to the stresses and injustices of American capitalism. One widely quoted study published in 1978 entitled All Our Children by Kenneth Keniston and the Carnegie Council on Children epitomized the expert conventional wisdom, if that's the proper term at the time. Family uh, breakdown was a consequence of poverty, uh, the structural bias of the American economy, the decline of cities, and the American myth of family independence and personal responsibility. Now, the public interest took on Keniston's hypothesis, which was widely, dis uh, widely uh, respected at the time, in a properly skeptical review uh, by Chester Finn, and in a later dissection in a 1980 article by Alan Carlson, with another techno-prisoner's title, Families, Sex, and the Liberal Agenda. Carlson uh, was uh, uh, traced in the article, he traces the uh, emerging sense of, uh, or the emerging idea of family diversity. Actually, the word that was more common at the time was pluralism. And he uh, specifically talked about the uh, 1980 uh, White House conference on Families. The original title for that conference was supposed to be the White House Conference on the Family, but you can imagine the kind of politics that were going on behind the scenes that led to the new uh, title, the White House Conference on Families, uh, and which uh, Carlson said endorsed the many life uh, lifestyle uh, choices that may produce a wide range of family forms. Uh, Carlson, of course, approached the issue of family diversity rather differently than the Carnegie Council or the White House, uh, the White House Conference. He argued that since the early 1970s, family counselors, sociologists, judges, and lawyers had all helped to advance what he called the collapse of the nuclear family norm in favor of new norms of mutability, choice, experimentation, and self-fulfillment. Uh, now, I introduce these two articles in some detail, the LeBeau and Carlson article, because I think between the two of them, they, uh, they allowed the public interest to uh, uh, introduce two key insights into what I call the unmarriage revolution. First, the journal reminded us about the tragic impact of family dissolution on men. As the family was reduced to its most radical unit, mother and child, men found themselves pushed into irrelevancy. This might not seem such an especially difficult point or, or obscure point, but it was in fact lost on most experts at the time. And throughout the, uh, these decades, as experts studied teen pregnancy, Put, put an awful lot of energy into this topic of teen pregnancy, which uh, became synonymous in the public mind with illegitimacy uh, and it, it, uh, with results that I think have been problematic. I'll try to get to that a little bit later. Uh, these experts uh, evinced almost no interest uh, in the men who were fathering these children. The child advocates uh, worried about how they might encourage young unmarried mothers to maintain their education and independence, 
Uh, they sought to expand federal, state, and local assistance to keep them in school and to teach them to feed their children, to read to them and boost the self-esteem and so on and so forth. Uh, they warned against any stigmatizing against early childbearing, but about the fathers, they really said almost nothing. Uh, in a, there's a very interesting 1982 piece in the uh, uh, public interest uh, entitled, Should Low-Income Fathers Support Children?, uh, by Blanche Bernstein, who was an administrator in the New York City Health and Human Services Department at the time. Uh, in the late 70s, the federal uh, regulators had tried to tighten up child support collection, but uh, Blanche Bernstein found that the New York City family court judges and social welfare professionals did all they could to undermine this effort. They viewed the idea of man's responsibility towards his family as outdated. Indeed, it was sexist, and given the disproportionate number of black fathers in the system, racist and hostile to the poor. Uh, this oversight about the men, uh, oversight is even the right word, uh, I think continues to haunt us um, today. Uh, in the fall of 1997, Wade Horn and Andrew Bush weighed in on, uh, in an article on, the, on the topic in an article called Fathers and Welfare Reform. Uh, Forty percent of, of children in single mother homes, they said, hadn't seen their fathers in a year. Uh, fatherlessness and marriage breakdown really added up to the same thing. Uh, Horn and Bush proposed that government policy should show ex uh, explicit preference for married couples in adoption uh, and in limited supply benefits like Head Start, public housing, financial aid, and so forth. Uh, they wanted policy to finally signal uh, to the public the importance of uh, marriage. Um, now, remarkably, 10 years after welfare reform and nine years after this Horn and Bush article and 40 years after LeBeau's article, uh, with a record number of single mothers in the workforce and despite the hopes of the architects of, of TANF, the low-income family is still in tatters and the men remain the mystery piece of social welfare policy. Now, the second key insight into the unmarriage revolution, which I, I uh, uh, described to you in Alan Carlson's piece, uh, was that ra raging family breakdown could not be written off as a response to, ch uh, or not simply written off, as a response to changing labor markets and structural inequities, uh, as many social scientists at the time were insisting. Instead, the public interest pursued Carlson's idea that the unmarriage revolution was in large measure a product of changing beliefs and norms. That is, of culture, a word we've heard so often uh, in the uh, uh, previous papers. Uh, one uh, article in particular I wanted to mention, uh, Maris Vinoskis, Teen Pregnancy in the Underclass, which was published in, uh, in 1988. Uh, it actually was a critique of William Julius Wilson's 1987 landmark book, the truly disadvantaged. Now, most of you, I, I would guess, know uh, Wilson's, something about Wilson's argument, which continues to be repeated uh, widely in the academy. Um, <clears throat> unlike many in his business, Wilson admitted that something was seriously amiss in the inner city. I'm sorry. <coughs> Let me, maybe you can do some more. Um, but he... Um, he proposed that the reason for this was that the, both the middle class and manufacturing jobs had moved out of the city, leaving a dearth of both role models and, more importantly, thanks very much, uh, marriageable men. Increased, uh, uh, Vinoskis, however, uh, made an important point. She said, 
Increased childbearing, teen childbearing, was not limited to blacks. It was rising among white adolescents as well. Uh, Wilson, she observed, ignored, like so many uh, other social scientists at the time, the increasing social acceptance of out-of-wedlock uh, adolescent mothering, as well as the increasing apathy towards fathers. Uh, in many communities, both early childbearing and fatherlessness were the new normal. And it's always been my presumption uh, uh, that people will pretty much follow the norms, and that was the norm. Uh, there was another article about five years later I just want to mention briefly. Uh, it, it, really a breathtaking exercise in political in incorrectness uh, by Jessica Gress Wright, in which she entitled The Contraception Paradox, in which she pointed out that it was the very girls, uh, low income and largely black girls, who had the most access to uh, contraception uh, and low cost contraception at that, who were most likely to become teen mothers. Um, now, throughout the 1980s and 90s, experts continued to insist that family structure was really not all that important to child well-being. Uh, and throughout the 80s and 90s, the public interest continued to insist otherwise. Uh, it matters whether children grow up with their own married parents. Um, uh, there was a, there's a kind of interesting uh, debate that went on in the, in the public interest between Richard Gill, who wrote a, an article called For the Sake of the Children, in which he uh, took a skeptical look at a study that had been uh, published in Science magazine, uh, which was widely quoted in the media, which was arguing that it wasn't the d divorce that was a problem for children, uh, it was uh, problems in the marriage that preceded the divorce. Um, uh, and uh, after... Um, Gill wrote his critique. Andrew Cherlin, who was the uh, lead author of this article, of the article in, in dispute, uh, uh, wrote another piece at, in the public interest responding to him. And the title of, the, of his response was Nostalgia as Family Policy. Uh, a word, uh, no, that word nostalgia is one that we've heard oh, so many times when we're talking about. Uh, of the family, but I think that uh, it's uh, very important to realize that uh, it's, it's a title that you would not see today, and including uh, in an article by uh, Andrew Cherlin. Now, um, I want to get then to the question of uh, uh, policy related to children specifically. Um, and, um, you know, I don't know whether it was a cause or a, or a symptom of family breakdown or a bit of both, but government agencies and policy experts backed up in many cases by civil rights lawyers, public interest law firms, and children's advocacy groups moved in to where the parents once ru ruled. Um, you know, I, I don't know what it is about children that makes, uh, you know, people who think of themselves as change agents uh, come up with just the most uh, bizarre ideas, but that's what happens. And, I, you know, I think of what, about, what I'm about to uh, describe to you uh, in the remainder, pretty much the remainder of my talk as social scientists gone wild. And the most dramatic example uh, came in the uh, spring of 1979 uh, in a Jacqueline, I think it's Kazin's article. I'm not sure if I've pronounced her name correctly. Children, turning children into sex experts. Um, this article caused such an uproar that um, it inspired a 60-minute um, segment, and uh, I venture to guess that this was the first and possibly even the last time that the public interest made prime time. Uh, 
Pierce went on to describe a new sex education in, uh, program in her California school district in Humboldt County. Uh, and even today, uh, Humboldt County in California, and even today, this uh, Paris Hilton era, it's, it is just jaw-dropping. Jaw um, the Humboldt County program was in part a response to the uh, concern with teen pregnancy at the time. Their answer to what to do about uh, teen pregnancy was, uh, I think you'll agree with me, will give middle schoolers soft porn. One proposal was to have boys and girls break into pairs uh, during class to work on a definition sheet with terms like uh, foreplay and ejaculation. Another was to schedule a class discussion about whether students were satisfied with the size of their sex organs. Sex educators were particularly taken with masturbation as a solution to teen pregnancy. Uh, the student will develop an understanding of masturbation, the cur uh, curriculum guide reads. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, uh, Bill Crystal mentioned yesterday that as a kid he thought of the title of the journal was The Pubic Interest, and maybe, maybe for this issue it was. Um, <laughs> Kazin writes with much uh, merited irony, when every little boy and, uh, and girl has been thoroughly initiated in uh, the full and free joys of sex, the new human being will emerge, and in the rhapsodic phrases of Dr. Calderon, and she's referring there to the founder of SECUS and an inspiration among progressive sex educators, larger, passionate, caring, unafraid, open, responsible, and exultant. Now, the sex educators of Humboldt County were a uh, sensationalistic example of the sort of scientific, this uh, social scientist gone wild, uh, as I'm putting it. Um, there, you know, but there are other examples that are uh, far, less, uh, far less wild and far less easily ridiculed and, and more uh, problematic uh, in, a, in a different way. Um, the, the, the journal uh, published quite a, number, uh, quite a few articles on the subject of daycare. Uh, which um, I realized as I uh, finished reading them is, is actually no longer such a, such a huge uh, part of our discussion. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But at the time, um, despite the fact that President Nixon in 1971 had vetoed a bill promoting uh, federal, uh, uh, that the federal government get into the daycare business, uh, the issue was still very alive at the time. Um, and in the winter of 1973, Sheila Rothman published a, uh, uh, an article entitled Other People's Children. And she described a number of reasons for this, uh, of what she called a chorus of approval on the subject of daycare. Feminists, of course, wanted to help women join the labor force. But advocates, uh, Rothman ar argued, also dreamt of promoting social cohesion, which they believe could only be accomplished by weakening the <coughs> impact of what they viewed as the intense and overbearing nuclear family. Uh, this uh, uh, reminds us again of um, uh, the Cason's uh, uh, idea of the new human being uh, that the uh, uh, advocates of the time were hoping to create. Now, for uh, reasons that remain mysterious, the public interest um, published an article in 1988, and Larry Mead referred to this article yesterday, um, which uh, promoted the idea of a European-style uh, support for single mothers um, and, uh, and chastised America for its uh, so-called punitive policies. 
Um, but uh, I, I have an idea about, I was puzzled at first, why did the public interest publish this particular article, but then I realized that uh, they did so so that they could have uh, Alan Wolf and David Pompano report from Scandinavia about the problems with the Scandinavian sy uh, system, which they both did. Now, I think the daycare issue is one of those areas where uh, the public interest maybe didn't exactly change the debate. But because it, uh, it uh, was uh, basing its arguments, because the contributors were basing their arguments on human nature, I remember we talked about that yesterday, uh, their, the, their arg the argument uh, won. Uh, and, and, and in general, I think what the public interest was, was saying was in alignment with the way many Americans, or mo and possibly most Americans, felt. Um, what we're in fact, what we found is that uh, women prefer informal care. They like to rely on relatives, on neighbors, or tag team parenting. Uh, the public interest noted this at the time, uh, uh, in, the, in the 80s. Uh, it's still true today. Um, the uh, public interest also noted that most women prefer part-time arrangements. This remains the, uh, the, the um, case today. Uh, it's interesting to note that um, one of the articles, and I for some reason didn't write it down, uh, said that if you look at the straight line predictions of uh, how many children of uh, how many mothers would be with, with, with um, preschool children would be in the workforce, uh, they predicted that by today we would have 70%. And in fact, it's only 50%. Um, and many, many of those mothers are part-time. So there has been a, a, a change, I think, in, certainly in the prediction, or rather in the trajectory that was anticipated at the time. Now, before I um, end, I want to just harp on this uh, social scientist gone wild theme briefly uh, some more because the public interest had a number of really important articles describing uh, what, um, what uh, one, one of the writers called uh, social problem construction. Um, this was uh, Joel Best in the summer of 1988, a really interesting piece called Missing Children, Misleading Statistics. Uh, it was an expanded... Uh, it, ultimately expanded this uh, article to be a, uh, a, a very underappreciated book entitled Threatened Children. But the interesting thing is that Best noted that after uh, several terrifying high-profile cases of child abduction, uh, some of you here will remember that the case of Etan Potts, uh, the, I, I remember it well, I just moved to New York City, uh, the, a child who was uh, abducted off the streets of New York, of, of uh, Soho, I think. Um, Researchers were suddenly coming up with new estimates of child abduction. Uh, these were fantastic estimates that bore little relation to reality. And Best was very struck with how, using dubious methodologies, experts and advocates could cook up numbers which would lead to proclamations of an epidemic, which would lead to demands for new programs, more money, commissions, uh, uh, and academic departments, and so on and so forth. Uh, Neil Gilbert in uh, The Phantom Epidemic of Sexual Assault in the spring of 1991 also showed how overzealous uh, researchers had, had come to the conclusion that 40%, that's, that's almost uh, half of all children had been sexually abused. 
Uh, and the way it did that was by uh, the way that researchers did that was to include under sexual abuse unwanted kisses and hugs. In fact, I don't know why it was only 40 percent. <laughs> um, to sum up, I, it took many decades, but I think that uh, it, would, it would be hard to dispute the fact that the public interest won the debate about the family. It recognized early on the essential role of fathers, uh, a subject that is, uh, and, and the uh, effects on men of being uh, ignored. Uh, this is a subject which is becoming uh, uh, part of the work that we're doing at the Manhattan Institute. Larry Mead is working on it as well. Uh, it is, uh, especially 10 years after TANF, uh, uh, still a puzzle and a very difficult problem that we, we don't know much about. But nevertheless, there uh, was uh, the public interest from 1966 uh, reminding us about the men, about the fathers. They also were, were uh, so important in describing the power of social norm, cultural norms in shaping uh, people's behavior, particularly young people's behavior, and also in pointing out the dangers for children in a world of fatherlessness and divorce. Now, these ideas find, uh, you now find wide agreement in the academy and in policy circles. Uh, there is no way that you could have um, an article, as I said before, that could be published, uh, uh, that could describe the concerns about the breakdown of the family as nostalgic. I think the public interest also uh, brought to our attention the overreach of experts who sought to educate and control the autonomous child in their own image and to manufacture social epidemics in many cases uh, in, that in many cases would further undermine the family. And I, in fact, I you know, do think that there is a uh, spirit of humility, or increasing sense of humility among uh, the social scientists that I read who are writing about the children and the family. Um, I've quoted this uh, one title recently by um, Jean Brooks Gunn, who's one of the titans of early childhood research. In a 2003 article, she wrote, Do You Believe in Magic? Uh, so, you know, there's a, there, and, oh, another interesting example, Ed Ziegler, uh, who was one of the architects of Head Start, uh, has urged uh, experts to become more realistic and temper our hopes. Um, so over the 40 years that the uh, public interest was publishing, they did win this debate uh, about the family, I believe. But now uh, that we've just recently heard, I think it was just last week, that we're 30%, 37%, excuse me, 37% of children are now born to unmarried mothers and now that we also are seeing a dangerous divide between well-educated married couple families on the one hand and low-income single-parent families on the other, and with gay marriage muddying this picture, it's not at all clear that, we can, that, that the public interest actually won the war. Thank you very much. The second speaker in this session is Diana Schaub. Uh, Diana is professor and chairman of the Department of Political Science at Loyola College in Maryland and a member of the President's Council on Bioethics. She was awarded a postdoctoral fellowship at Harvard University's Program on Constitutional Government and was a recipient of the Richard M. Weaver Prize uh, for Scholarly Letters. She was uh, formerly the assistant editor of The National Interest and author of the book Erotic Liberalism, Women and Revolution in Montesquieu's Persian Letters, along with numerous other
book chapters, articles, essays, and publications like The New Criterion, The Public Interest, The American Enterprise, and she holds a PhD from the University of Chicago. Her subject is bioethics. Harvey Mansfield in the previous session uh, was forthright enough to remind us that men and women are different. Uh, I noted that this panel on manners and morals is the only panel dominated by women. Uh, indeed, the only panel with women on it. Uh, perhaps that is fitting. After all, Tocqueville tells us that morals are the work of women. I shall strive to be as moral as I can be uh, in my remarks on bioethics. While bioethics is a relatively new coinage, Serious thought about what technological advance might mean for human life is not a new activity. Aristotle, for instance, in the first book of his Politics, mentions the possibility of automation. He says, if each of the instruments were able to perform its work on command or by anticipation so that shuttles would weave themselves, then master craftsmen would no longer have a need for subordinates or masters for slaves. Aristotle can imagine mechanization and robots making both slaves and underlings obsolete. But for him, the possibility is so remote that he associates it with the god Hephaestus and the legendary craftsman Daedalus. What for Aristotle was a mere thought experiment became, by 1965, a reality. The first issue of The Public Interest had two articles on what was billed as the Great Automation Debate, uh, examining the displacement of human labor first on the farm, then in the factory, and eventually in the office. In some sense, every technology is biotechnology, since every technology will have implications for our manner of life. In its origins, the Greek word bios referred not to animal life or mere aliveness, the word for that would be zoon, as in zoology, but rather to a course of life or a manner of living. One is alive, but then that life must be lived. Uh, as young people so trenchantly express it, get a life. Their sarcasm conveys a moral judgment. Human beings don't just live in the zoo. They seek to lead lives and have bios worthy of biography, as in Plutarch's Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans. Bioethics and biotechnology may be neologisms, but bios has always been intrinsically connected with ethos and with techne. Since I'm at some risk now of classifying every article ever published in the public interest as a bioethics article, I will in a moment contract the bioethical sphere to more manageable or at least more recognizable proportions. One reason, however, for starting with this more expansive definition uh, is that the magazine published a number of articles on topics like pollution, global warming, uh, and the environmental movement, topics that would fall outside the charge of, say, the President's Council on Bioethics, but that have some claim to consideration under this rubric. These are all questions concerning technology and its import not only for the human future, but the future of the biosphere. The planet as a whole has a biography which is being written uh, and perhaps rewritten by our species. One of the first articles along these lines uh, in the summer of 1971 entitled On Making the Future Safe for Mankind took a decidedly anti-growth, anti-technology stance, uh, describing the automobile as the greatest disaster to have befallen mankind uh, and calling for a wholesale reversal of the powerful trends, technological, philosophical, economic, that began in the 18th century. 
Now, the magazine did not regularly present such doomsday views. More common over the years were articles like the, envir the environmentalist assault on agriculture, uh, a sensible environmentalism. How much does global warming matter? Uh, and my favorite, uh, why global warming would be good for you. Uh, all of these global warming articles were always published in the winter issues, by the way. <laughs> that was winter of 1995. Uh, articles like these, by and large, looked to further technological advance to solve whatever problems were brought by technology. The authors argued that it is, in fact, the affluent society that will do away with noxious effluence, uh, and they denounced the technophobes in the strongest terms. The judiciously balanced position was articulated by Irving Kristol himself uh, in a 1975 lecture uh, to the Polytechnic Institute, which was reprinted in the public interest in 2001 under the searching title, Is Technology a Threat to Liberal Society? Uh, there, after revealing that he started out as a physics major, uh, Irving describes his own Socratic turn. Quote, after one year of studying physics, I discovered that physics was very hard. So I decided to be an intellectual instead. We are all the beneficiaries of that shift in life course from natural philosophy to political philosophy. Uh, Irving goes on to diagnose the nature of the technological threat. Uh, in his wonderfully unaffected way, he says, scientists and engineers have the inclination to think that the world is full of problems to which they should seek solutions. But the world isn't full of problems. The world is full of other people. That's not a problem. That's a condition. Politics exist precisely because the world is full of other people. These other people have ideas, different ways of life, different preferences, and in the end, there is no solution to the existence of other people. All you can do is figure out a civilized accommodation with them. Irving ends up recommending liberal education for scientists uh, in order to harmonize science with liberal society. He writes, and this may well turn out to be the biggest single challenge facing the scientific community, its own moral education, its own assumption of moral responsibility for the use and abuse of scientific knowledge. For this, you need an education not in science, but in the humanities, because you don't get moral education by studying science. You may acquire good moral habits, by studying science, but you don't get a moral education. You don't learn to think about problems of good and evil by studying science. That's what the humanities are for. And scientists, I believe, in the decades ahead are going to have to become much more attentive than they have been to the humanities in their own self-defense. The need for a humanistically grounded science is more than ever apparent in light of new developments in the sciences of biology and medicine. Since the second half of the 20th century, there's been a revolution in biological knowledge. In 1953, the structure of DNA was discovered. By 2003, the mapping of the he human genome was essentially completed. With newfound knowledge has come a remarkable ability to manipulate and transform life. We have organ transplantation, gene splicing and genetic engineering, in vitro fertilization and the manufacture of embryonic stem cell lines, the cloning of animals, and the creation of human non-human chimeras. Knowledge advances and power expands, but what of wisdom? How will bioethics keep pace with biotechnology? The public interest had the answer. The contribution of the public interest to bioethical reflection can be summed up in one name, Leon Cass. When Irving Kristol called for scientists attentive to the humanities, one might have thought such creatures chimerical, but for the example of Leon Cass. 
Uh, Leon Cass is a man of science steeped in the wisdom of Athens and Jerusalem, who for upwards of three decades has sought to preserve and integrate the best from each tradition. Leon Cass was not the only author to address these matters in the pages of the public interest, uh, but I think he is the most significant. Uh, moreover, I suspect that many of the others would be willing to acknowledge Cass's teacherly influence on their own thinking. Uh, all told, the public interest ran eight articles by Leon Cass uh, and published reviews of three of his books. In addition, after Cass became chairman of the President's Council on Bioethics, the magazine published four reviews of the Council's cloning report as a symposium with a reply by Cass uh, and ran a review of the Council's Beyond Therapy report as well. Now, the public interest was not the only place uh, that Cass published important articles. Uh, commentary, the American Scholar, and various professional journals uh, received their share. But it was a regular venue in which he pursued his quest for a richer bioethics. Now, what would a richer bioethics look like? For starters, it would go beyond the liberal shibboleths of safety, choice, equal access, consent, and autonomy. Mainstream bioethics operates within the constricted horizon of liberalism. The object of its ethical reasoning is the autonomous self, that dangerously abstract uh, and almost disembodied entity. It isn't just ethical impoverishment that Cass complains of, however. He's a critic of modern biology as much uh, as modern bioethics. Modern biology, like modern science altogether, is reductive. It flattens life to body. It deanimates. It sucks out the breath, the soul, the spirit. Or, uh, if that sounds a little too ghoulish, uh, perhaps we could just say that modern science ignores the higher aspects of our animation uh, and concentrates on the body understood as matter in motion. Apparently, if life is to be mastered by the science of life, then life must be understood as the sort of thing that can be mastered. In other words, it must be defined as something fundamentally slavish, something fully manipulable and controllable. Uh, as Cass explains it, in order effectively to serve the needs of human life, modern biology reconceived the nature of organic body, representing it not as something animated, purposive, and striving, uh, but as dead matter in motion. In one sense, the strategy of abstraction and simplif simplification clearly worked. Modern science has posted uh, significant achievements uh, and acquired tremendous power. The lingering question, though, is whether we have purchased those achievements and that power at the price of our full humanity. Modern man has become both tyrant and slave. From neither position can he achieve much in the way of self-knowledge or happiness. Cass wants to restore the scientist's range of vision. He calls for a more natural biology and anthropology that would examine the phenomenon of life in its entirety without the reductionistic blinders on. Uh, Jonathan Rausch, in a very fine public interest review uh, uh, of, of Cass, described Cass's project as the philosophic reconstruction of natural science. This new biology would in turn provide a foundation for a new bioethics. The result, according to Cass, would be a richer ethic of bios tied to a richer logic, logos of bios, an ethical account of human flourishing based on a biological account of human life as lived, not just physically, but psychically, socially, and spiritually. Uh, another way of formulating this would be to say that biology and bioethics should begin not from body, but from embodiment. 
Given Cass's interest in the meaning of human embodiment, uh, it's fitting that both his first article in the public interest in 1972 uh, and his last one in 2002 uh, both dealt with the making of babies. Cass begins where we all once began, with the fact that we are begotten and born. He explores the meaning of procreation and the human significance of sexual reproduction. He articulates the links between sexual reproduction and the ground and purpose of the human family, the continuity of the generations, the formation of individual identity, uh, and the meaning of our freedom and our mortality. He shows how the low and the high, the animal and the rational, are inextricably linked together. Uh, It struck me as quite fitting uh, that my 20-minute blurb on bioethics was slated between Kay Heimowitz's talk on marriage, children, and family uh, and Bill McClay's talk on religion and American politics. That's precisely where bioethics, uh, understood as the ethics of human life as humanly lived, ought to be situated. Uh, Ethical and and political life is sandwiched between the natural, subpolitical given of the family uh, and the supernatural, suprapolitical realm of the divine. For compound beings like us, there is a continuum from the elemental to the transcendent. Cass explores how that continuum might be altered by a shift from the begetting and bearing of new life to the manufacture of new life in the laboratory. Uh, He sketches what is at stake in the advent of in vitro fertilization, uh, egg and sperm donation, surrogate pregnancy, uh, and perhaps eventually human cloning and artificial wounds. Uh, What would it do to the ethos, the beliefs, customs, and habits of a political community uh, if the substratum of human existence, the family, were to be profoundly altered? Uh, What does filial piety mean when one's father is a sperm donor? Uh, Towards whom should a cloned human being feel piety? Uh, Think for a moment uh, of the bizarre and baffling situation to which the practice of in vitro fertilization has led us. Along with the 170,000 miracle babies uh, born through assisted reproduction, the embryos, who are the genetic siblings of the IVF successes, are stacked up in petri dishes uh, in deep freezes across the country. There are said to be some 400,000 of them, uh, and we call them surplus or excess or spare embryos. We've started to regard some embryos not as members of the next generation, but instead as spares who might as well be put to use as spare parts. We can now manufacture new life not to succeed old life, uh, but to serve and sustain old life. New life becomes the research material that will allow us to live longer and more comfortably. What becomes of the American political commitment to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity when we start to view our posterity as our property, either to engineer to our specifications uh, or to destroy for our benefit? Finally, what becomes of wonderment and awe in the face of nature and nature's God when there don't seem to be any limits upon the assumption of godlike powers? Along with these inquiries into the meaning of embodiment, uh, the public interest uh, also published a number of articles dealing with the art of medicine. Uh, The seminal work was again by Leon Cass, uh, his 1975 article entitled Regarding the End of Medicine and the Pursuit of Health was an exploration of the proper purpose uh, and limits of the medical profession, arguing that the natural standard of health is what ought to guide care for the body 
Cass questioned whether medicine should be in the business of biomedical enhancement, uh, neuropharmacologic happiness, uh, or attempting to conquer death. Other boundaries of the medical enterprise were marked out in later articles dealing with doctor-assisted suicide uh, and organ transplantation. It should be noted uh, that the magazine also published a piece on organ transplantation which took a very different approach, a more economistic approach, uh, and endorsed at least an indirect commodification of body parts. The transformation of the medical ethic was explored in a number of fine contributions on the state of doctoring and nursing by uh, Ronald Dworkin, uh, and a series of pieces by various uh, authors uh, traced the increasing medicalization of many facets of life. Uh, we read about medicalizing character, uh, medicalizing temptation, uh, and the medicalization of unhappiness. The ancient Greeks were well aware of medicine's tendency to usurp territory. According to an old legend, uh, the great physician Asclepius was struck dead by Zeus for daring to pursue immortality by bringing a man back to life. In the absence of Zeus's thunderbolts, we today rely primarily on self-regulation. Uh, like the scientists, the physicians are going to have to think more profoundly about the use and abuse of their art. While Cass looks to Aristotle and Hebrew scripture for insight into human nature and living well, uh, other public interest authors have searched for guiding lights somewhat nearer to the American regime. Uh, former editor Adam Wolfson, in an article on the insufficiency of both contemporary uh, con uh, liberalism and conservatism to meet the challenge of the new science, uh, closes with an appeal to the founders, uh, and especially to that most scientifically minded of the founders, Benjamin Franklin. Precisely because Franklin was both scientist and statesman, uh, he understood the need for practical wisdom to superintend scientific aspirations. He warned against allowing the scientific enterprise to interfere with essential duties for the reason that, quote, there is no rank in natural knowledge of equal dignity and importance with that of being a good parent, a good child, a good husband or wife, a good neighbor or friend, a good subject or citizen. Uh, I very much like the appeal to the founders, uh, and I've often had recourse to them in my own writing, although I suspect that to put flesh on Franklin's use of the word good, uh, we will in the end be led back to Athens and Jerusalem. Uh, does being a good husband mean taking your Viagra, uh, or does it mean accepting the infirmity of age with grace and humor? In closing, I want to just mention that there's a terrific journal uh, that has taken up where the public interest left off. Uh, our moderator, Eric Cohen, is the editor of The New Atlantis, uh, which is concerned exclusively with these questions of science and society. Yet, despite the passing of the bioethical torch, uh, it is a real loss that we no longer have the public interest. One of the great delights and intellectual benefits of subscribing to the public interest was the experience of serendipity. You sat down to read an article on, say, welfare policy or federalism, uh, and soon found yourself in the midst of fascinating reflections about something else entirely. The public interest was a many-splendored thing. Our third speaker is uh, Wilfred uh, McClay who holds the SunTrust Bank Chair of Excellence in Humanities and is Professor of History at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. He jokes that his children just call him the Sun King, which is a little shorter. Uh, <laughs> I hope he'll forgive that. Uh, 
his many publications include The Masterless, Self and Society in Modern America, which received the 1995 Merle Curtis Award of the Organization of American Historians for the best book uh, in, in American history, uh, The Student's Guide to U.S. History, Religion Returns to the Public Square, uh, and Figures in the Carpet, Finding the Human Person in the American Past. He was awarded fellowships from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars and was designated one of the nation's outstanding teachers uh, in the Templeton Honor Rolls for 1997 and 1998. Uh, he is a member of the National Council on the Humanities, a senior scholar at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, uh, and a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, uh, and is off uh, this upcoming spring for a Fulbright professorship in Rome. Bill McClay. The subject is uh, um, religion in America. Thank you, Eric. Uh, I'm, I'm really sorry that uh, Ramesh Panaru is no longer with us. Uh, I mean, in this room, I'm sure he's. <laughs> I trust that he is. Uh, although, as you'll see, uh, that may fall under the categories that I'm about to introduce you to. Um, I, I say this because I deliberately uh, 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 decided to begin my remarks with uh, some, some quotations from uh, Ramesh's close friend, Andrew Sullivan, who's already been uh, referred to, a man who places uh, Billet Doux on his website on an almost daily basis directed at Ramesh, uh, and I know how much he appreciates that. Um, <laughs> Uh, Sullivan, as you may know, has uh, just published a book uh, called uh, The Conservative Soul. So he's uh, got a, an oar in the water, so to speak, both on conservatism and religion. Uh, so I'm going to begin with him. Uh, I won't end with him, but I'll begin with him. Uh, one of the things he says in his book that I think is actually quite interesting is that uh, uh, the way he defines conservatism. Conservatism means... We know what we don't know. We know what we don't know. Um, this is taken, I think, from Michael Oakeshott, who uh, I've never known what he knows, uh, but uh, that, that's another matter. Uh, I think it's meant as an expression of epistemological modesty, that, uh, that we are to be skeptical. We are, uh, we are not to be too sure of things. I've not noticed that this has had much effect on Sullivan in other respects, about which he seems pretty damn sure. Uh, and if you think of it, someone like Socrates, who uh, propounded a version of this uh, statement, was not terribly modest either. Uh, actually could be quite obnoxious, at least uh, by my standards. Uh, so I think there's something missing here from Sullivan's uh, account of things that uh, uh, both on religion and conservatism and and at the risk of uh, sounding a bit like uh, I'm echoing the poetry of Donald Rumsfeld here which is I'm sure well known to you uh, I might add this that conservatism is also uh, can be characterized by this statement we don't know what we don't know not only do we know what we don't know but that we don't know what we don't know meaning that our range of questions uh, about uh, reality, about the nature of reality, are limited by our context, by our powers of conception. Uh, I, I could say I know that I don't know um, what Bill, where, where Bill Clinton is right now or what he's doing. Uh, I'm sure there are other things I could say about him that, that would fall into the category of things that I don't know that I don't know, if you see what I 
mean? <laughs> um, and then I think there's an even more deeply conservative uh, iteration of the Sullivan uh, koan, uh, and that is that we don't know what we know. Uh, that is to say that there's such a thing as what Michael Polanyi called tacit knowledge, uh, social knowledge, social capital, things that are instilled and passed on uh, to us without our conscious awareness, without our being uh, able even to be articulate about it always, uh, things that uh, we may not even know are there until they are stressed in some way or even uh, forced to, to, uh, to be put uh, to a, a severe challenge. These things are embodied in institutions, in kinship uh, patterns, uh, folkways, customs, and such. A religion um, deals with this knowledge gap, so to speak, between the things that we know and don't know, between our, our knowledge and the world that we actually inhabit. Religion is a kind of bank of human experience, especially moral knowledge uh, and the knowledge, or at least what we can know or can think we know, about ultimate things. Uh, for us, it's especially embodied in the great Western historical face, uh, Christianity and Judaism, uh, and their chief variants. The editors of the public interest were keenly aware of all this, and the, a respect for religion, not, not the same thing as the embrace of religion, but the respect for religion, was one of the background assumptions of the, of the public interest from the very beginning. I, I would say that it was more of a background assumption, an implicit uh, assumption, uh, rather than something that's expressed explicitly or thematized, as people say in the academy. And, uh, and I'm unaware of, uh, I wasn't able to go through all the issues uh, either, but I was un I'm unaware of any articles in the PI over the years that dealt with a theological question as such or uh, uh, in, in any direct way. It would just be inconsistent with the nature of the magazine to do such a thing. Uh, the, the public interest assumptions about religion were always the functionalist and consequentialist in character. Not uh, proposing to reduce religion to those things, but uh, concentrating methodologically on what could be known about them in that way. This, uh, I would argue, is one of the great virtues of the public interest, and it makes it a model for discourse about religion in the era we're now entering, another reason to regret the loss of it, um, an era that is, in the best and worst senses of the word, postmodern. Uh, I think of the public interest as embodying a skepticism, uh, but a skepticism that is skeptical, even of skepticism itself. Um, this uh, was an assumption made by uh, made as observant or non-observant believers, uh, though, as I say, commitment, religious commitment, was never excluded as a possibility. Um, the magazine was equally accessible to secular and religious readers. The, the PI's attitude towards religion was generally one of sympathetic outsiders, at least methodologically. It was secular in the very best sense, uh, meaning non-sectarian, not secular in the sense of being a substitute faith. Uh, this attitude, I think, uh, reflects the fact that the editors were wise students of human nature and human society. Uh, and I especially would stress that term human nature. There's a strong sense uh, of human nature 
in uh, uh, much of the work in the, in, in, in the thinking behind articles in the public interest, uh, whether they deal explicitly with religion or not. Um, in a sense, I think you could say that uh, the editors took, uh, whether they did so consciously or not, uh, Francis Bacon's famous dictum that nature, in order to be commanded, first has to be obeyed as one of their uh, marching orders. So they respected the facts about human nature. They realized what kind of beast man is. Uh, just as they understood that you could not generate wealth without profits, you could not generate law-abiding behavior without punishments. You could not generate uh, generosity without incentives. So you could have no abiding social order without something like religion. It was a deep human need, and it would not be disappearing anytime soon. The impulse for the sacred, the division of the world into spheres of sacred and profane, existed in every society. They, the editors, uh, knew that Freud's hope that modern society would uh, do away with religion was itself an illusion, tantamount to any number of other utopian uh, schemes to make over human nature. Um, and let me quote here Dan Bell. Uh, Ours is the first generation to annul the boundaries which maintain the preciousness of the principle of life itself. And he needless to say, did not think this was a sustainable position. Now, those words sound a little bit almost preachy, but in fact, the magazine was never preachy about this or preachy about much of anything. Uh, it let, as everyone has said, and I will uh, uh, confirm that in my own investigations, it let the evidence lead the way. It was empirical. Uh, one even had the sense at times that if uh, a way were, could be found to deal with uh, uh, certain problems without recourse to religion, they would be very happy about that and would be happy to consider that. This, I think we all find, uh, who admire the magazine, find this empiricism and openness refreshing. Irving Kristol even was willing to uh, question Darwin, uh, evoking horrified reactions from uh, many quarters. Um, the best uh, social scientific thinking about the role of faith-based organizations in achieving social change and individual transformation uh, was similarly neutral and effects-oriented, not preachy, not moralizing, just a willingness to look at the record and see what turns up in it. Um, Arthur Brooks's new book, which I have over there, Who Really Cares, is a perfect example, I've just been reading it, of the, uh, the PI mind at work. I, it's, a, it's a book, uh, and I believe he contributed uh, part of that book to the magazine a couple of years ago, that I can't imagine being published without uh, the public interest preparing the groundwork for it. Uh, there is, I think, a kind of public interest vision. Um, and I don't, I don't know that anybody's quite articulated it the way I would, so I'm going to try. And I think religion plays a role in it. Um, it's, I would call it an, an equilibrist vision. In fact, I think the whole neoconservative understanding is equilibrist uh, meaning this, that nothing, no force, no value, no objective was so good that it couldn't be overdone or ruined or vitiated by excess. Uh, therefore, generalizations of the middle range were to be favored. Uh, two cheers and not three, as uh, Irving Kristol uh, uh, said. Um, 
Or I often think of, uh, this may be a slightly precious uh, example, but bear with me, uh, uh, Beethoven liked to, uh, t- uh, in assigning Tempe to his works, he liked to use uh, terms like allegro ma non troppo, uh, adagio ma non troppo, but not too much. I think ma non troppo could be a neoconservative, uh, at least an Italian neoconservative uh, motto. Um, how do, you know, uh, how do you know when something's tropo? Uh, it's hard to define, sort of like obscenity, but, uh, but you knew it when you saw it. It was a kind of intellectual and moral taste. Um, and they could see that the effort of the modern world to expunge religion was uh, multotropo. <laughs> the, the public interest never, ever became a journal supporting religious fanaticism. But it might and did see great virtues in the behavior and social effects of people whose religion they couldn't possibly share and see ways that the respectful cultivation of religion served as a break on some of secular and commercial culture's worst pathologies. One of the many things that I miss about the public interest is the way it provided a venue in which secular and religious writers could meet on fruitful common ground with a common discourse, bracketing questions about religion's truth and considering only its culture-molding effects and the effects of its absence. Um, This is a commitment to rational discourse, so just the sort of thing that was being discussed in the previous session, without which there there can't be meaningful academic life, there can't even really be anything worthy of the word public. Um, In that sense, I think the religious godfather of uh, the public interest and of neoconservatism more generally is not Leo Strauss, but Tocqueville. there is something to the accusation that uh, neoconservatives uh, at times uh, evince a view that religion is a, a good thing for other people to have uh, and that elites uh, don't need to bother with it themselves, but uh, they certainly need for non-elite groups to have it. Um, there's something to this, but I think Tocqueville's the stronger analyst and the more uh, uh, influential one. Uh, and for Tocqueville, uh, religion was the handmaiden of liberty, uh, not the antagonist of it, in very much in contrast to the European pattern. Religion was, uh, along with the principle of self-interest uh, rightly understood, the, the principal break on individualism to which American culture was, uh, American uh, society was prone. Dangerously prone, his view. Uh, because the editors recognize that a modern liberal society, however one defines it, whether in terms of free markets, free expression, individualism, whatever, uh, could only be governed by the interplay of countervailing forces, or could not only, excuse me, be uh, governed by countervailing forces, but needed some larger moral framework in which the value of liberty could be grounded and which the collision of interests and ideas could be contained within. Without uh, a larger framework, the fundamental needs of child-rearing and the formation of functional, productive, responsible individuals, as Larry Mead has uh, used the term before, would not be possible. The public interest was a journal that favored liberty, and particularly economic liberty, but it was never libertarian. It believed that a liberal society needed certain illiberal elements in its deep background in order to function. Uh, 
And these element were, uh, elements were ultimately grounded in traditional moral dicta, especially religion, and particularly traditional inherited religion, the faiths that uh, had existed for a long historical time in the West. Uh, for me, one interesting area of ambiguity that I think relates to this sort of question of, uh, of the development of neoconservatism is, is uh, whether uh, the public interest uh, saw religion as itself a countervailing force among many others on the one hand, or on the other hand, as a kind of deep enabling force, something different, uh, uh, qualitatively different, uh, a kind of uh, sine qua non for all the rest. Uh, uh, thinking, using, going back to the equilibrist idea, was uh, religion just another force in the field of forces? Or was it the space within which the play of forces took place? Or maybe a better, uh, homier example, was, uh, was, it, was it a force that deserved a place at the table, or was it the precondition of there being a table at all? Um, I think this is a question that, that is batted around in a very indirect and oblique way in the magazine, and I think it leans toward the former view, but is, uh, is, is ambiguous, uh, believing that uh, contra Andrew Sullivan, we don't even know what we don't know in that regard. Or uh, maybe better, we don't know what we, what we already know. Uh, what we already know through the traditions that we pass on and they're embodied. And by the way, one of the best uh, uh, expositions of the role of tradition that I've ever read, which I just recently reread, is an essay by Nat Glazer, uh, which unfortunately, for, inconveniently for me, was not in the public interest, but uh, uh, an essay called The Limits of Social Policy, which was in commentary and, and is a, a beautiful uh, exposition, not only of the problems of unintended consequences and the ways that social policy perpetuates the very, or can perpetuate the very conditions that it is created to address, but of the necessity of tradition as a kind of balance wheel to uh, all these uh, rational interventions in social policy. Uh, so uh, the, 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 the departure versus deepening theme, which came up before, uh, I, I think at first glance, uh, one might say that with respect to religion, there is a development, there is a deepening, and, and there is a uh, change in the tone of the magazine in the last five to ten years. Certainly the, the big issue on religion that was done, uh, I think, in the last year or last year and a half of the magazine is something that would have been hard to imagine earlier. And, and certainly there is more of, a, more of an interest in culture as the magazine develops. But what, what I want to stress is that all three editors um, always were concerned with religion. The concerns varied over time, but they were always among their central interests. Uh, Nat Glazer's uh, wonderful, I think still valuable, book on American Judaism uh, uh, would be an example, although something he said that has been quoted at least a million times because it has never been uh, exceeded as, a, as a, an account of the, the rise of the new religious right is his term uh, a defensive offensive, 
which I don't know where that appeared. Maybe you can tell me that. But uh, uh, it's a perfect characterization of exactly what uh, social forces lay behind this rise of a much more aggressive and publicly engaged evangelicalism. Uh, Dan Bell, uh, uh, you know, his, I have here his book, The Winding Passage, which uh, the title of which is meant to echo Dante and Dante's journey. And in fact, it begins, these are the essays of a prodigal son, essays written in my middle years, midway in the journey of our life. I mean, it's taken straight out of Dante. In that dark wood, seeking a return to the straight way of my ancestors. I know that the world I live in is different from theirs, yet the duplex nature of man remains largely the same now as then. Um, but I think this, this interest in religion is especially strong in Irving Kristol, who um, tells us uh, that he, has a fa- he had a fascination with theology as a young man uh, and who never lost respect for the value of religion. Clearly, it was a preference for a certain kind of religion, uh, I often wonder if uh, what he, Irving wouldn't have liked best was a kind of high church Anglican settlement, uh, though perhaps with a little more theological spine to it. Uh, uh, religion, but not too much. Secular, friendly, but not too much. Uh, but he was and is smart enough to know that the spirit blows where it lists. So he's been willing to extend his sympathies to religious orientations such as Protestant evangelicalism and other uh, fideistic uh, faiths that, uh, that may be uh, tropo-tropo on occasion, but uh, can be brought into line in a democratic pluralistic culture. Central to Irving's outlook is the distinction between prophetic and rabbinic religions or Eric Vogelin expresses an opposition of orthodoxy versus Gnosticism. Uh, Of the two, uh, he, of course, favored the rabbinic and thought it was the stronger at Bordering. The prophetic or the Gnostic was dangerous. It was a rebellion against the prison of this world. It's antinomian and millenarian. It's most likely to prevail when the rabbinic religion has been neglected. He saw the 60s as an example of the prophetic strain. He saw uh, communism as uh, having some of that millenarian uh, prophetic attraction. Um, Orthodoxy, on the other hand, has the purpose of sanctifying life, ordinary life, encouraging virtuous living. It encourages us to live and persevere against the world's evils rather than seeking to eradicate them or complain constantly of life's unfairness, or seek to transform human nature in some other image. Socialism was, for his generation, the chief way of imagining such transformation. And the failure of socialism was a signal generational event. But Irving was wise enough to know that there would be other wild Gnosticisms in American culture, such as environmentalism and transhumanism, these bioethical challenges and others coming along in their wake, since this too is a tendency of human nature. And he knew that they too would need to be guarded against. So in some respects, the public interest vision of religion also guarded against its excesses. Everything had to be accountable before the bar of reason. Everything had to be subjected to a kind of cost-benefit analysis, in a sense, 
But the point was to take the full range of costs and benefits, the full range of costs and benefits into account, making use of a complete understanding of human nature and human needs, not just the platitudes of economic man or socialist man or modern man. Uh, just as neoconservatism was a critique of liberalism that emerged out of liberalism and remained faithful to many of its precepts, so it was a kind of, it was and is a kind of modernism that continues to be rooted in the modern while seeking to understand more deeply what's lacking in modernism and why modernism, too, needed a corrective. And uh, let me just conclude by reading... Uh, the final paragraph of uh, Irving Kristol's book, uh, Reflections of a Neoconservative. Uh, it is ironic to watch the churches, including large sections of my own religion, surrendering to the spirit of modernity at the very moment when modernity itself is undergoing a kind of spiritual collapse. If I may speak bluntly about the Catholic Church, for which I have enormous respect, it is traumatic for someone who wishes that church well to see it modernize itself at this moment. Young people do not want to hear that the church is becoming modern. Go tell the young people that the message of the church is to wear sackcloth and ashes and to walk on nails to Rome, and they would do it. The church turned the wrong way. It went to modernity at the very moment when modernity was being challenged when the secular Gnostic impulse was already in the process of dissolution. Young people especially are looking for religions so desperately they're inventing new ones. They should not have to invent new ones. The old religions are pretty good. It's a very Irving-esque statement there. Pretty good. <laughs> Don Tropa. <what's> New ones are being invented because the church has capitulated to modernity at the very moment when the rebellious, Gnostic, self-confident spirit of modernity was entering a major crisis and moving toward its own discreditation. It is all very sad. But also the characteristic voice of, of Irving Kristol and I think of, uh, of the, the uh, public interest understanding of religion. Thank you. Well, after those three uh, superb papers, we should hopefully have a rich discussion. As moderator, I really only have one job, which is to keep the trains running on time. Of course, I don't own a watch. Uh, so, uh, Robbie, Robbie will give me the magic signal up there from the high, from the high reaches uh, when I should take the last question. But let's uh, not to keep. Uh, this would be useful if I knew how to read a watch. Um, Let's open it up for, for some questions. Uh, their microphone is uh, circulating from over there. Sir. Uh, it's been a common theme in this conference that the public interest was concerned with human nature in a way that uh, social sciences have not been and the natural sciences never were. Um, is there... I mean, by that, I mean that uh, nature is having a, uh, implying a soul animation and so forth. Uh, and this, is there any hope within modern biology for a recovery of a, of a sense of wholeness of the being that they, beings that they study, a kind of an understanding of teleology? 
Uh, only if Leon Cass succeeds. <laughs> That's what I'm curious. Is he the only one? There's no. There's no. Well, I, I think there are others. I mean, he he acknowledges his his debts to certain precursors like Hans Jonas and uh, and some other names. Uh, so there is actually a long tradition of this sort of philosophic biology, uh, but it's gone very much out of fashion. So. Thanks. Uh, as a late night watcher of TV, I was um, um, charmed to hear this idea of social scientists gone wild. Um, <laughs> I know where that's drawn from. <laughs> but uh, um, my, my question really uh, re relates to that, to that theme um, because so much was made uh, today uh, and yesterday of the idea of the public interest uh, criticizing or reconstructing or deconstructing actually previous social science. And that raises the question of what was wrong with previous social science. Why, why, why did it go wild? And uh, what was its flaw? And, and maybe uh, in all of the issues of the, the public interest, uh, no one maybe directly confronted that theme itself. How is something in the name of science, after all the same spirit in which the public interest uh, claimed to be operating social science, how was it that the previous social science went astray in so many uh, different ways, to the extent that, in, in Kay's case, uh, it becomes the old social science became uh, the backbone for simply an attack on anything that was normal or bourgeois. That seemed to be its animating spirit, all in the name of, of science. Or in the name of, uh, we know this in the name of social control of the economy, uh, a desire to control the economy entirely, but without any understanding of economics. So uh, the question I, I think I'd like to uh, pose is, uh, if anyone has any, any thoughts, what, what was the central um, flaw of this old social science? Um, was it because it had lacked religion? Was it because it had sought to control the world? Was, is it because, I, I think maybe to, to summarize what its spirit is, it, it seemed to draw so much more on Kant and our progressives, the same spirit, than it did on Tocqueville, but something in it was, was uh, lacking, and I wonder if anyone had any general thoughts on what that might be. Well, just, just one thought that um, I mentioned in passing the notion of generalizations of the middle range, which is a sort of uh, term associated with Robert K. Merton, who is also associated with the the idea of the, uh, how did he put it, the unintended consequences of purposive action. Now that, that whole notion of unintended consequences, I think, was worked out with the greatest precision by him. So I, I, I think both of those things point towards uh, a degree of modesty, of genuine, not, not Sullivan modesty, but real modesty, uh, about uh, what what the techniques of social science can hope to, to accomplish and determine, uh, uh, but that they can do something as long as their, their scope is restricted, as long as the, the problem is defined in a sufficiently narrow way, as long as too much isn't being claimed, as long as it isn't a sort of doing philosophy in disguise. 
You know, I, I would just add one thing. I, you know, I, my training is in the humanities, so I, I don't feel that I'm in a position to really uh, go into the problems of methodology and all that that, that uh, led, led to some of this uh, wildness. Um, but you know, I, I do remember those uh, in the, those years uh, the kinds of people who were going into the social sciences um, were often people who were. Change agents, as they, as they, wasn't it psychologists who described themselves that way? So the impulse was, uh, you know, already, already there. Now, why the methodology wasn't able to tame, tame that impulse better is something I can't, I can't speak to. Oh, uh, Diana, do you want to get on this? Yeah, I, I guess it seems to me that the problem with the social sciences is the same as the problem with the sciences: the reduction of life to body. Uh, there was actually uh, uh, a series of articles that I didn't mention at all, but the public interest over the years uh, took up many times the IQ controversy. Uh, and there was a very interesting article by Leon Cass uh, uh, challenging uh, the authors of The Bell Curve. Uh, I think the essay was called uh, Intelligence and the Social Scientist. Uh, and it was a kind of critique of the social science approach, uh, and that something uh, was very much missing from this, uh, you know, reduction of uh, uh, human rationality to uh, intelligence and something that you could that you could put a number on. I'm going to guess that the wildness came from simply a breakdown of discipline. I think in the '60s there was a profound belief that we no longer needed social discipline because the country was so rich. I remember reading uh, an argument by, I think it was, I forget who it was, it appeared in commentary to this effect exactly, that uh, in an affluent society we can afford to let our impulses govern. And that, I think it came out in two ways. It meant among the more middle class, more professional population, there was a sense that we no longer need to live a disciplined personal life, and that led into the dissolution of marriage and the the, uh, the drug problem and a lot of other expressions of a breakdown of personal order. But more importantly, in dealing with social policy, it led to uh, a casual determinism whereby we exempted the poor from any responsibility for themselves because they were found to be in the grip of unjust social forces. So their problems actually are far deeper and I think go back a lot further than the 60s. And those are people who I think in many cases lack a, a sense of order that's very deeply rooted. But the elite was able to deny them any responsibility and, and, and exempt them from any any and, and really ignore the problem of order because of a belief that that was not on the agenda of history. History was leading towards liberation. And one thing the public interest, I think, represents, if anything, is uh, a movement away from that conviction, and the, the conviction that even a free society requires discipline. Or the way I put it in my writing, those who would be free must first be bound that a citizen able to live a free life must have personal discipline. And society has to in some way instill that, even if we also believe in freedom. So the movement away from freedom and towards obligation as an organizing concept is one thing I associate uh, with the public interest. And religion is part of that. Religion, I think, cuts both ways. It's a force for liberation, but it's, of course, also, also a force for, uh, for order, for obligation. Uh, and that's explicit, certainly, in the biblical traditions where you proceed from the law towards freedom. Or, and and, and the, the idea of freedom in the Bible, in the Old or the New Testament, presumes that people have already struggled with the law. That they, they, it's only after you have been, after you've been bound by the law and guilt and all the associated struggles that you can be saved. 
And, and, and one thing the 60s tried to do was to exempt people from the law, to have them merely be saved. And, and that isn't possible. Uh, and I think this, the, the cultural milieu of the 60s was very much an idea that, that, that uh, again, discipline was no longer necessary and therefore we can be free. And a lot of the uh, way out psychologizing of the 60s was it really meant a sort of disassembly of the personality. Uh, and, and we've been clawing our way back from that ever since the 80s. Yeah, I think one of the reasons that the public interest showed so much interest in the family uh, was that they recognized, that the contributors recognized and the editors recognized that the family was uh, the kind of locus of, self, of discipline. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, and Also, just coming back to Jim's comment, which I think is extremely interesting, I, I actually think it's less a matter of social scientists going wild than it is social scientific ideas going wild out in the culture. So that you have uh, the effects of a kind of pop Freudianism and even worse of pop cultural anthropology, which we're still, still dealing with the effects of this in, in terms of things like uh, uh, the belief that, that, that gender identity and gender roles are completely socially constructed, which every Upper West Side uh, uh, couple still believes firmly is the case, uh, you know, despite all evidence to the contrary. Uh, and this, this stuff has had a, a tremendous influence in the culture that actually I suspect uh, that um, a larger part of the blame would go to the way in which the social scientific ideas have coursed through our culture than to the people who've tried to propound them more carefully, although I have very little uh, defense of Margaret Mead, at least the early Margaret Mead. Uh, but certainly when, you, when you're, you're faced with the kind of uh, social scientific imprimatur for the idea that, that kinship relationships that in your religious tradition are regarded as sacred are just dyads, you know, and uh, well, you know, why not uh, configure it this way or that way? And uh, in a sense, uh, the, the whole web of human relations, instead of being something where we don't know what we know, uh, and, and therefore don't know what we're going to be screwing up when we start tinkering with it, um, is just a, 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 a pile of poker chips that we can move around uh, on the board any way we want to. Uh, and, of course, leading to some of the disasters that we're now uh, involved in and climbing our way back from. It, it occurs to me also, I wonder what role the uh, expanding media plays plays in the in the social scientists gone wild i mean the, the examples that i gave from the joel best article uh and the neil gilbert article also those the missing children uh the abducted children you know these make great stories uh for the for the evening news of course and um you know insofar as you can get your you you know you can get a um Involved in an issue that is going to get a lot of media attention, uh, I wonder whether the temptations are uh, are not particularly healthy for the for the business. Robert, do we have time for one more? Do you want the last yeah, question? Uh, of course, we have. <laughs> you, you you paid for this microphone. <laughs> yes, that's that's right. famous expression goes. So uh, yes, you can have the last question. My donors paid for this microphone. Uh, uh, Bill, I, I don't know if we can let the social scientists off the hook. Uh, that easily. Uh, somebody did produce the studies that uh, Kay is talking about here, and uh, there are 100 or 200 more. We probably all have files with these uh, studies uh, in them. And they go on today, although I think uh, not at the rate that they were being produced in the period that uh, Kay was 
was, uh, was talking about. And so I wonder how we account for that. I mean, is it as coarse an account as this, that uh, for whatever ideologically motivated reasons, people wanted certain programs, and they needed to justify these programs. And uh, the social scientists were put to work constructing the justifications by doing what sometimes were and sometimes came near to being fraudulent studies to justify moving in this direction. So I, I, or, is there, or is that just too coarse or is it more complicated and more nuanced than that and, and so forth? And then I, my, a question related to that back for, for Larry, Larry Mead. Larry uh, has made the point several times both at this conference and or, or on earlier occasions uh, about how contemporary social science has moved in a very scholastic uh, direction. I would ask Larry, is that to some extent the fruit of the embarrassments caused by the exposure of so much of the social sciences, uh, social science of the 70s and 80s as being all but, if not fraudulent. So that people want to stay away from that kind of stuff, this what seems ideological, and move into very scholastic, highly mathematical, not very relevant to any reality social science. So, so Kay first and then Larry. Um, uh, well, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, what Bill said. I, I don't know, and I don't know what I don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, I, I, I just don't know what, you know how much this is a self. This was a self-conscious effort to uh, ramp up interest in you know programs that people had in mind. I, I don't know the. Um, I don't know these social science disciplines well enough. I don't, you know. I would guess. I'm just, uh, you know, and this is something somebody else would would have to elaborate on, I would guess that there really was, a, that these, the methodologies were very crude. Um, you know, the, the very little I know about methodology um, uh, leads me to understand that the random assignment uh, studies are the, you know, gold standard. Everybody says that now. Were they doing random assignment? I mean, how, you know, how well did they determine, you know, discipline them? I don't, I just, I don't know. Let me answer Kay and then, and then Robbie. Um, I don't think the social science of the 60s, 70s was fraudulent in any explicit sense. It's rather that as people approach, approach the new poverty problem as it appeared in the 60s, they analogized it with the problems of opportunity in the American past, uh, such as the breakdown of the economy in the 30s and the lack of what we now regard as adequate opportunity earlier than that. The, need of the use of education to open doors for average Americans earlier in the American experience. So when poverty appeared, the, the reflex was to say it's due to a set of barriers that these people face, which a middle-class American doesn't face, and so we should expand their opportunities. I think that was the basic reason. What wasn't perceived was that poverty was a different problem. It wasn't really due to lack of opportunity. It wasn't like the 30s. It really had to do much more with the breakdown of the discipline of personal life and the family. And it took a long time to take that on board. Now, it was concealed because you could even then, and you can now, construct statistical models relating any social problem to a set of external conditions. And the people who built those models were, I think, quite sincere in believing them. And they thought that if you changed the external inputs, you would change the behavior. It just turned out that that was false, or it was only faintly true. So the early programs uh, that we now associate with the Great Society were the construction largely of economists who uh, believed in this universal human nature that would respond to incentives. 
uh, and they got it wrong. That's all there is to it. But now to respond to Ravi's question, uh, well, the other thing they got wrong was that they didn't take seriously the role of institutions. They, they thought about policy, but not about politics and administration. And those turned out to be crucial to any idea of a solution, as was finally shown in the welfare case in the 90s. Uh, but to turn to Robbie's question, um, I wish I could say they had a sense of, of guilt or failure about what happened. But in fact, my sense is they don't. That the, uh, the current academics that are still at the heart of the poverty establishment are still, they believe that something went differently in the 90s and they have to somehow take account of welfare reform, but they don't think they got it wrong. They don't think they made any important error. Partly they shift the question and say the issue is how to attain greater equality or some other economic goal that wasn't part of welfare reform, and they'll say we didn't achieve that, so we're still looking for a reform. They'll, that's one way to get around it. But they are really insulated from accountability by the academic structure, which continues to honor them and, and reward them for the kind of research they're still doing. Uh, and they really have even now failed to take on board what happened. Only a couple of them have in any way admitted, in ways that I've heard anyway, that they got something wrong in the 90s. So I wish it were true, Robbie, that the retreat into scholasticism is due to some sense of failure. I think almost the opposite is true. It's driven largely by uh, the incentives of the journals and the current university. Uh, it's not really related to policy failure. Uh, and in fact, the opposite is true. It's, it's the scholastic uh, over-refinement that is now making it more likely that they will fail to, to see the truth. Uh, and it's now a greater problem than PC, I think, in, in developing a, a relevant social science. And that, I think, created a sort of a vacuum that the PI failed, uh, helped to fill as long as it was in existence. Has anything changed in the peer review process? Uh, the, the peer review process is an ingrown process where articles are largely reviewed by other specialists in exactly the same area. The thing, one of the things that leads to over-refinement in scholasticism is the tendency of the peer review process to become narrower and narrower and narrower. So the reviewers are seldom people very different from the author of the article, and they therefore never bring into question the basic assumptions behind the research. It used to be reviewers were sometimes different people, and they would raise fundamental questions, but that's now seen as improper. So if you're reviewing something in rational choice, you're expected to honor the basic rational choice assumptions, or it's unfair. And when people come up from tenure, they expect to be reviewed by other specialists in exactly their area. And therefore, large questions about method are simply not raised. Uh, with that, let me thank uh, the three panelists for their fine presentations. And let me say thank you to Eric uh, Cohen for chairing uh, the panel. Uh, we'll now take about a 10-minute break, and we'll then return for our concluding panel, our panel of the Bills and Nat. Bill uh, McClay again, Bill Galston, uh, Bill Bennett, and uh, Nat Glazer. <laughs> I'm not really ready for this one.